Hello and welcome back, Heart Wisdom fam. This is Ganesh Bramiller reporting from the snowy mountains of Colorado, welcoming you to episode 213, Don Juan Meets Buddha, Becoming a Spiritual Warrior. This one was recorded in 1983 on New Year's, right at the cusp of 84, and actually holds a really special place in my heart because, lo and behold, Carlos Castaneda's Don Juan books were potentially what I would consider in this lifetime the first step onto the spiritual path for me. I was in college, I had just become interested in psychedelics, and that opened up a lot of different uh, curiosities for me uh, around philosophy and wisdom and what reality was. But I didn't really know where to look. This was before I had brushed into teachers like Ram Das and Jack and Sharon and the whole group that you know so well from listening to Be Here Now Network. But I had a deep yearning for uh, spiritual truths. And around this time, a fly happened to be noticed around me quite a bit. I was like, oh, hey, there's a fly here. And I was trying to get it out. And I couldn't get out of the house. And I maybe went to work at the time and it kept following me. It was just following me around. Now I was in my hippie phase at the time. So maybe I wasn't showering quite as well, but either way, this fly was everywhere. And it consistently for days. And at a certain point, I just went, hmm, maybe there's a reason. Maybe with all these spiritual experiences I've been having in my life and all the questions I've been asking, maybe there is, maybe this is an answer. Maybe there's spiritual significance to this fly. So I went online and I just Googled, I don't know exactly what I Googled, I don't remember, but something along the lines of fly, spiritual experience, psychedelics, shamanism, some conjunction of those phrases, because that's what I knew at the time. And what came up was a book by Carlos Castaneda, one of the Don Juan books. I think of the, a separate reality, which may be the second in the series. But in that book, there was a passage about a fly, a fly that came as some sort of guardian, a guardian that uh, Carlos Castaneda had to get past, a threshold guardian, if you will which his shaman, who you will hear about in this podcast, Don Juan, was able to help him pass so he could take his next big step onto the part of the spiritual path that he was going on at that time. So that led me to pick up the book, to go get the teachings of Don Juan, a Yaqui way of knowledge by Carlos Castaneda and dive in. And I was a person with a lot of questions at the time. And the way the book was presented was Carlos Castaneda in dialogue for m many parts of it with his shaman, with this sorcerer, Don Juan, who was just filled with so much wisdom. And it satiated my hungry mind that just wanted to pick up these different spiritual truths and start to learn how to apply them in my life. And there are arguments whether Don Juan is this uh, 
a, a real figure or not. But either way, the wisdom encased within both the books and this podcast is palpable. So I've gone on long enough today, but before welcoming you into the episode, I do have to invite you to a amazing live cohort that Jack has going on this November. Learn the dynamic art of interactive guided meditation, a masterclass with Jack Cornfield. This course is quite deep and emotional. The modules contain pro shot videos from Spirit Rock of Jack uh, leading some really almost shamanic sessions with people, both leading people through meditations and sharing the art of how to be able to do that for others. These sessions are available right now on jackcornfield.com. And if you sign up, you get access to the November 16th and November 29th live question and answer sessions with Jack. November 20th, we have Jack's Monday Night Dharma Talk for the month of November. With everything going on in the world, it is always so important to check in with Sangha. And this is the bread and butter of that for Jack's community. You can register at jackcornfield.com under events or spiritrock.org under the calendar. This is pay what you can, and we would love to have you there. So thank you all for always being here, for always providing your divine attention and awareness. It means so much to have a community and something to hold on to, a wisdom, a love in these trying times. And I just hope that you are all safe, that you are happy, that you are helping others through the authenticity of your own being, and that your hearts are smiling. Please enjoy this fine episode. 213, Don Juan Meets Buddha, Becoming a Spiritual Warrior. Namaste. I thought about what to speak of this evening, different topics, the qualities of listening and opening and meditation or ways of working with the hindrances and decided to speak, You use a, an old talk that I haven't given in quite a while, which to me is uh, kind of inspiring and I think appropriate for entering into a new venture, the venture of 1984. I started the retreat together with you that first night. I read a quote from Don Juan. Tonight's talk will be a lot about his teaching. He says, for me, the world is incredible because it is stupendous, awesome, mysterious, unfathomable. My interest has been to convince you that you must learn to make every act count. I've wanted to convince you that you must assume responsibility for being here in this marvelous world, in this marvelous time, since you're only going to be here for a short while, in fact, too short, for witnessing all the marvels of it. There's a kind of mystery, the mystery of time, of the sun going around the earth. No one knows where that came from, big 
balls of fire hanging in space and balls of rock. We live on this 8,000 mile ball of rock with a very thin layer of plants, a few feet of, of, uh, of soil, some plants and some air, 8,000 miles of rock and millions of miles of black empty space. It goes around once a year, does its thing. It's such a mystery. In the spirit of the teachings of the Dharma, whether it's expressed by the Buddha 2,500 years ago or Don Juan in Mexico, whether he existed or not doesn't really matter. All is the same as somehow opening to that, that mystery of our life of being born, getting this body, childhood, adolescence, adulthood, aging, dying, going through this mysterious process of life. The Buddha, when he spoke of the spiritual path, often described it as the developing or the cultivating, the awakening of certain qualities. He called them the factors of enlightenment, the qualities of awakening. And they're beautifully represented in the language of Carlos Castaneda and Don Juan. So since we've joined together for this New Year's Eve, I'd like to use that language to speak about what Don Juan calls the way of a warrior. There's a mysterious beauty that surrounds those individuals who live their lives as warriors, as men or women of knowledge. The first quality, and you can sense it as I go along, are things that grow. Even though you've done three or four days of sitting and struggled and your knees hurt and your back hurts and your mind's restless, still, as I talk, you can sense how the work we're doing here, which is so important in the world, really, how it begins to nourish these. First is impeccability. A man or a woman of knowledge is impeccable. There are some people who are very careful about the nature of their acts. Their happiness is to act with the full knowledge that they don't have time. Therefore, their acts have a peculiar power. Acts have power, especially when the person acting knows that those acts are their last battle. There's a strange, consuming happiness in acting with the full knowledge that whatever one is doing may very well be one's last act on earth. What matters to a warrior is that they become impeccable, that every act counts. This is also the quality of mindfulness or mindfulness or awareness. It's the quality of learning to live completely in each day, in each hour, in each action, in each communion or touching of another person. For Don Juan, it means, he speaks about taking death as an advisor, death over your left shoulder, realizing that 1984 may be it, that may be it for this particular dance for you or even for the whole world. We don't really know. 
and somehow to realize the shortness and the preciousness of it. And with that, say, well, how do I want to live? The opposite of impeccability is half-heartedness. Think about it. Think of how many things in our lives we've done half-heartedly. To school half-heartedly, some of us, or do our work or some relationships, which we kind of do, or or uh, various other things. No, that's the big ones. And then the little ones of going for a walk in the woods and being so caught up in our thought or our worry or our memory, we don't smell the pine trees or, or see the ice as it glistens on the branches. It's like it goes by and we're on automatic pilot. Think again for yourself of the times that you've lived most fully in your life. Those times when you were really wholehearted, when you did something with all your energy, all your attention, all your body and spirit, all together. It doesn't even matter how it comes out when you live in that fashion. Just the quality of living and doing it completely itself is fulfilling. Think about the things you really put yourself into and how they taste to you. They have a certain taste of sweetness from that fullness. This is the central quality of a spiritual warrior, of a man or woman of knowledge, is awakening this capacity to be full or impeccable or careful in relation to our body, to the breath, to movement, to to all the physical elements, in relation to our emotions, to be aware and present with our desires, our actions. And we can practice it all kinds of ways. You can come to a retreat and be silent and sit and walk and sit and walk and sit and walk and sit and walk. And gradually, you know, very slowly in its way, it gets nourished. And you find on the fifth day of the retreat that you're reaching to take a cup of tea. And for a moment, maybe it becomes like the Japanese tea ceremony. And you're just there taking a cup of tea. And it's the only thing in the world and you're really there. It makes all those five miserable days worth it just even to have a moment like that. At least I think so. (laughs) But it can be trained in all kinds of other ways. It's not just through sitting. In the uh, the Castaneda books, you know, at one point uh, Don Juan says to Carlos in his training, he said, we're going to go out to the desert today to meet your ally you know he could have said okay Carlos we're going to go to the desert to the high desert the chaparral and I'm going to leave you there for two days and I want you to do Vipassana I want you to sit for an hour and then walk for 45 minutes and sit for an hour and pay attention you know watch your breath and the sounds and sensations and I'll be back if he did that especially given what Carlos describes of himself as slow learner, he probably would have fallen asleep. Instead, he said, today, Carlos, we're going to the desert to meet your ally. And the ally, we don't know what form it's going to take. It might be a bird or it might be a wild animal. It might sneak up from behind you. It might be some kind of a spirit. Carlos was terrified. Left him in the desert for two days. Was he awake? Every sound, every noise. 
There are a lot of ways to train it, but it's, it's the same basic principle. And you know it in your life because something will happen, an accident will happen, or, or a very precious thing will come, and all of a sudden you wake up and you're there really fully. And this is the, this is the, the path of awakening, of opening. It's the central quality, and out of it, the other six factors of enlightenment grow. So the first is learning, developing a sense, as we do here, of being more full, more complete more whole with each thing we do. <coughs> Impeccability. The next three are arousing qualities of mind, and the last three are stabilizing qualities. The second is that warriors are energetic. They're not lazy. In the scriptures, and the sutras, the word most often taught by the Buddha was not nirvana or enlightenment or even mindfulness. It was effort. Enlightenment is not your birthright, says Ramana Maharshi. Those who succeed do so through proper effort. What does it mean to make proper effort? We have to understand this. First of all, it means, as I said in the first night, not the effort to change things, but to be awake. It's the effort to be present, to see things as they are. Even to see that you're not aware can be terribly interesting. You know, you reach that point in your practice in the day where you say, I just, I am tired of being mindful. I don't want to be mindful anymore for a while. Okay, I'm going to go take a walk or a nap or a break or something. I'll give you a hint. At that point, right before you go to take your walk or your nap or whatever, just take a peek and see what it is you don't want to be mindful of. Because there'll be something there that you don't want to be aware of just at that point where you say, I'm tired of it, maybe boredom or restlessness. Just take a peek behind the curtain. So to make right effort isn't to not have all those things, but rather to discover our capacity to be aware of things as they are. And it's not some pie-in-the-sky thing. It's very concrete. The Sufi expression is, praise Allah and tie your camel to the post. Like, it's wonderful to have a lot of spiritual ideals, but tie your camel and tie your shoes and wash your dishes. The effort to be right here. The other is to realize that we have a much greater capacity for opening in our energy than we think. You know, uh, we're kind of afraid, and a warrior begins to get a sense, as you will in these 10 days, because they're very demanding, that we have greater capacities than we know, that, that energy is really much more endless than we think. We kind of have the battery model, you know. Well, if I sit and I do the late sitting from 8.45 to 9.30, God, I'll be so tired tomorrow. Maybe I should go to sleep early. Or if I sat after that, it would be too much. I mean... I'd use up all my energy and I'd be tired for the rest of the retreat. <laughs> You'll see tonight you have an opportunity to test that if you like. There's a very different way to work with energy than thinking you have a little battery full and you have to measure it out in, in spoons. And that is to re recognize, you can test it for yourself, that when you do things very fully, the presence, the fullness of your attention of being there brings energy. It's like you open up and you become more of a channel for energy. 
so that that the meaning of effort is the effort to be balanced, to pay attention to what is here, and to discover our capacity for doing it. It's like St. Augustine prayed, Dear Lord, please give me chastity and continence, but not yet. You know, we want we want to be awake or we want to get enlightened or we want to whatever. We want to be peaceful. We want to meditate. But not tonight. I'm a little tired. You know, I'll do it tomorrow. And to work with this quality of effort means to be willing to uh, to open more, to to give yourself to 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 die in some way or to grow, whatever words you want to use for it, to play. So there's energy. Warriors are impeccable. That is that they're present and careful. And we learn that gradually. And men or women of knowledge have a sense of right effort, of being present with things as they are, and of, of opening our, our spirit of energy. Then the third quality, energy. Men, or women, men and women of knowledge are courageous. Most of the time, okay? Or warriors are courageous. What, what does this mean? It's not courage to go and fight wild animals or do daredevil things or something like that at all. It's a, it's a very deep kind of inner courage. It's the courage or willingness to investigate for ourselves, to look into every secret corner of the heart and the mind, to look at everything as it truly is, not as we'd like it to be. The courage to look at death, to look at our fear, to look at loneliness, to look at the mystery of the world, to look at the shortness of life, to look at the beauty of things, to look at pleasure, to look at pain, to really open to all of it. There's a story of Mullah Nasruddin, this sort of Sufi wise man and fool kind of mythological teacher rolled into one. One day he was outside of his house sprinkling breadcrumbs in the garden. And someone came up to him and they said, Mullah, what are you doing? Sprinkling more crumbs. He says, oh, I do this to keep the tigers away. And the person said, but there are no tigers within thousands of miles of here. And he said, effective, isn't it? (laughs) We can get into that way of doing practice. You know, well, they say watch your breath or lifting, moving, placing when you walk. And you kind of do it in a rote way as if it's going to make the tigers go away or as if it's really going to enlighten or awaken us in some way. It doesn't work. It's not a rote thing. You do have to put in your time. You have to sit and walk and sit and walk and so forth. But the real quality is that of the courage of, of, of observing, of witnessing, of investigation. And when we do, especially in the beginning of the retreat, there are difficult things. There are the, the five hindrances that those have been to other retreats. We give a long talk about them. There's fantasy and hope and desire, like anything but what's in the present moment. If only I got that, then I'd be happy. Or there's the opposite. There's aversion and irritation and anger and fear and pushing things away. There's sleepiness and dullness. There's restlessness when you wake up. And then there's doubt. You know, and these are the main hindrances or difficulties, sometimes one at a time, sometimes as a multiple hindrance attack. Thank God. <laughs> What does a warrior do when they're sleepy you know, or dull or, or uh, restless or doubting? Hey, this is too hard or I came to the wrong retreat or 
Wouldn't a little champagne and a nice party be better than this? Whatever. Or desire or anger. Boy, you can get pissed doing practice. Somebody next to you is sniffling and sneezing or whatever, or walking too slow or walking too fast. You know, all these things come. And the spirit of this third quality is the willingness to see them all and sit with them and discover their nature. Desire comes, notice desire. Fear comes, look at fear. It may take you 10 or 50 or 200 times of being really afraid. And finally you look at it and you say, oh, there's fear again. I know you. And it loses its power over us. Or desire and anger, and they run the world. Most people are terrified to look, to experience it. Sit here. If there's a lot of anger, feel it. If there's desire, feel it. If there's restlessness, great. Be restless. Be bored. Die of restlessness. Sit here. If it comes, oh, it's so difficult. Fine. Take me. Kill me. Just let it, let it do what it will. What you discover in this capacity, and you're already learning it, I mean, just the fact that you kind of stick through, hoping that the bell will ring sooner than it does or whatever, you learn that there's this strength we have to sit and really witness and open to all these parts of ourself in the world. Don Juan puts it very beautifully. He says, only as a warrior, a spiritual warrior, can one withstand the path of knowledge. A warrior cannot complain or regret anything. Their life is an endless challenge, and challenges cannot possibly be good or bad. The basic difference between an ordinary person and a warrior is that a warrior takes everything as a challenge, while an ordinary person takes everything either as a blessing or a curse. It's that difference, not to say, oh, it's terrible, it's a curse, or it's blessing, it's wonderful, but to work with everything. It becomes really interesting then. Not our ideals, but our experience. Now, there's a secret to it, to doing this, and that secret is not to cling to that which is pleasant and not to avoid that which is painful. Because the way that this planet that we're on is constructed is there's light and dark, night and day, up and down, birth and death, sweet and sour, and pleasant and painful. They're all part of it. It's duality. It's kind of mixed together. You can't have pleasure without having pain. You can't have pain without having some beauty and pleasure. They're part of the same continuum. If you would like not to have pain in your life, please get yourself born someplace else because it's not so here. And when you accept it and you say, yeah, there's this dance of color, of light, of pleasant things, of unpleasant things, but that's what it is. Mother Teresa was interviewed in Calcutta at one point by BBC. This man, she was talking about her work and so forth and all the capacity to give and love so many people, her and her nuns. And he said, well, you know, it's easier for you and you're a renunciate and you don't have to take care of insurance and, and families and children and, and all the kind of, and you just have your, your, uh, your robes and um, everything is taken care of and I'm married and it's so difficult, all this. And she said, no, no. She said, I'm married too. 
and held up the ring, which is the symbolic wedding of the nuns in her order to Christ. And she said, and he can be very difficult sometimes. (laughs) So if it's hard for her, you can imagine that it's hard for everybody else. And that's okay. The quality of courage is our, really our heart's capacity to open to all, all the things in our life. What, I mean, if you could do one thing in 1984 to begin it, that process of opening, what a wonderful thing it is. The fourth quality, there's energy, there's courage or investigation. And the fourth one is what Don Juan called controlled folly. It's really a nice phrase. It's a kind of lightness or a joy in not taking oneself so seriously, in discovering or looking at the play of life. It's what T.S. Eliot, I think, meant in his line in Ash Wednesday when he said, Lord, teach me to care and not to care. Controlled folly is is really a, a spirit of discovery of the play of life. Man or woman of knowledge chooses a path with heart and follows it, and then looks and rejoices and laughs, and then they see and know. They know that their life will be over altogether too soon. They know that they, as well as everybody else, are not going anywhere. They know because they see that nothing is more important than anything else. In other words, a man or a woman of knowledge has no honor, no dignity, no family, no name, no country, but only life to be lived. And under these circumstances, their only tie to their fellow humans is their controlled folly. Thus, a man or woman of knowledge endeavors and sweats and puffs, and if one looks at them, they're just like any ordinary person, except that the folly of their life is under control. Man or woman of knowledge chooses an act and acts as if it matters. Their controlled folly makes them say that what they do matters, makes them act as if it does. Yet they know that it doesn't. So whenever they fulfill their acts, they retreat in peace. Controlled folly, it's a perspective of a kind of lightness. Really, what are you going to do? You have this short, relatively short, you know, 80 or 100 years at best around the, around the star, right? You have this stance. Write some poems, build a building, have some children. Will it last? And the best anybody's been able to do is the Great Pyramids, maybe 5,000 years already. If anybody's been there, they're wearing down the Sphinx's kind of... We do all these things thinking that there's something permanent that we do that really is going to last, some work of art, some thing we do. And yet in 10,000 years or 50,000 years, the geography will change. This part of Massachusetts will probably be underwater at that point, if not sooner. You know, And all that we've done, it's not going to last in itself. Or you look at the planet from a little further away. You look from outer space and you see there it is, this blue-green globe hanging there. And there are these five billion 
people like ants down there all going around and thinking what they're doing is terribly important. (laughs) Thus shall ye think of this fleeting world, says the Diamond Sutra. A star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom, and a dream. An echo, a rainbow, a bubble. It's fantastic. It's the, it's the greatest show on earth, as they say. It's, it's, it's wonderful. But that's what it is. It's empty, you know, in some really deep way. Everything comes for a while and it disappears. The dinosaurs are gone and George Washington is gone and your great-grandparents are gone. And last night's Dharma talk is gone. Where does it go? It goes back into the void where it came from. You know, I can say a word. I can say pyramids. Picture the pyramid. And then I start to talk about something else, New Year's Eve. And it's gone. The word's gone. The picture's gone. Where did it go? Where did this morning's meditation go? Back with George Washington. (laughs) The dinosaurs. It's just gone. It's fantastic. And we don't see that. So this sense of controlled folly is a, is, a, is a playfulness, is a joy of mine, is seeing that <clears throat> what we do is this, is this dance. And what matters much more is the heart that we bring to it. And when we die, it's much more going to be a question of how we've loved than anything else at all, than what we've built or accumulated or done. There's a poem, and I'll read it. Some of you have heard it before. It's from an old woman, 85 years old, in in Louisville, Kentucky. She says, if I had my life to live over, I'd like to make more mistakes next time. I'd relax and limber up. I would be sillier than I've been this trip. I'd take fewer things seriously and take more chances. I'd climb more mountains and swim more rivers. I would eat more ice cream and less beans. (laughs) I'd perhaps have more actual troubles, but I'd have fewer imaginary ones. You see, I'm one of those people who live sensibly and sanely, hour after hour, day after day. Oh, I've had my moments, and if I had it to do over again, I'd have more of them. In fact, I'd try to have nothing else, just moments one after another. instead of living so many years ahead of each day, I've been one of those persons who never goes anywhere without a thermometer, a hot water bottle, or raincoat and a parachute. If I had it to do again, I would travel lighter than I have. If I had my life to live over, I would start barefoot earlier in the spring and stay that way later in the fall. I would go to more dances. I would ride more merry-go-rounds. I would pick more daisies. What a wonderful spirit for New Year's. It's a spirit of play somehow, of opening up in interest in our life. So there's energy, there's courage, and there's controlled folly. And all of these come. You sit here and you can't help but getting a little controlled folly after a couple of days or it'll drive you crazy because your mind will do anything. It has no pride. It doesn't. 
The next quality of a warrior is strength. And it doesn't mean strength of will exactly or strength of physical strength. It's really the power of the heart and mind to be one-pointed or collected, both in one's purpose and one's vision. It's the power of concentration. And it's needed to penetrate or cut through the illusion, the rapidity and speed of mind. You know, at one point, 10 years after Carlos started to study with Don Juan, he said, please, I've gone in the desert, I've taken these mushrooms, I've done all these kinds of strange meditation practices and so forth. Would you tell me where is this going? What is the heart of it? What's the, the essence? And Don Juan said, well, I could tell you, but you don't have enough personal power to understand it. One of the meanings of personal power is this kind of strength. I could tell you. It's written in all these different traditions and things. You, you don't exist as a separate being. It's all just a play of light and shadow. Okay, you can go home now. <laughs> the quality of strength is a power of mind to look really deeply at our experience, to cut through all the thoughts and worries and see to the very root of it what consciousness is, how the mind works, what the, the body and mind together are and what their, their nature is. It's cutting through the apparent solidity of things or the sense of separation. And there are many ways that it's trained in the American Indian tr tradition the Eskimo tradition, someone who's trained to be a shaman or a wise man or a wise woman will go out and they're given a big rock which represents the earth and a small one which represents the way they see the sun going around the earth. And they're told to sit and roll the small one around the large one day and night, paying attention to nothing else until their mind becomes so collected and so attentive that they cut through and see a, a whole radical new way of perceiving the world. It doesn't happen by accident. It happens as we're doing here in coming back again and again and really learning to be concentrated and learning to look. And it's not like enlightenment or awakening or understanding is down the road in March of 84 or in some other place. It's here in every moment. In any moment that we awaken, we can see what's true. In this clay jug, this is a poem from Kabir, are pine mountains and canyons and the maker of pine mountain and canyons. All seven oceans are inside and hundreds of millions of stars. The acid that tests gold is there and the one who judges jewels and the music from the strings that no one touches. If you want to know the truth, my friend, I'll tell you the truth. All the world is inside. If we become silent enough, in any moment we can see what is true, what the nature of, of our life, of the mind is. It's not like it's someplace else, but it requires this collecting, this coming back, this opening of the heart and a, a concentration. So there's strength of mind, which is this personal power of really being present. Then peacefulness. 
The three stabilizing strength. The second is peacefulness. Warriors, spiritual warriors, are peaceful or tranquil. A man or woman of knowledge treats the world with tenderness. There's a kind of stillness around people who have come to some sense of wisdom in their life. There's not hysteria or agitation. It's what Don Juan calls stopping the internal dialogue. Learning how to stop the internal dialogue and see. Where is it? It's not on there. It doesn't matter. Become peaceful to see. We get so busy and our culture is so busy that we lose track of what's important. And most of us are deeply good and wonderful people. Our hearts are, the essence of our hearts is good. But what happens is that we forget to ask, we forget to touch them. You know, we might ask ourselves tonight on New Year's Eve, what do I really care about? What matters to me? What do I want to do in this next year? Maybe it's my last. What do I treasure? What do I value? If I could hear you, I'm sure that really wonderful answers would come. But we forget because we're not quiet, we're not peaceful. Kabir says something else again. He says, I don't know what kind of God we've been talking about. The caller chants in a loud voice at dusk. Does he think that God is deaf? Don't you know that God hears the ringing of the anklets on the feet of an insect as it walks? There's a kind of peacefulness or stillness that comes as we sit, even though we're agitated and restless at times, we begin to be able to listen in a deeper way to what goes on in our bodies, sounds and sights, to our feelings, our heart, our thoughts. To be peaceful also means not not tossed so much by our desires and fears. You know, it means a kind of restraint. American freedom is the freedom to read the magazine you want, to buy the kind of car you'd like, to uh, have a lot of channels on TV, to drink the kind of beer that you want. You know, that's what you're taught. In Russia, they only have one kind of beer, right? <laughs> State says you drink this kind of beer. Right? But in America, we can have Bud or, you know, Heineken or whatever we choose. It gets trivialized like that. This is American freedom or what kind of car you buy. The Bill of Rights, freedom of speech even. Most of that isn't freedom. Most of it's just conditioning and habit. We buy the cars we buy or drink the beer we do because of ads and taste and cultural conditioning. And if we live somewhere else, we'd buy a different kind of car or drink a different kind of beer. It's not freedom at all. It's just kind of being led around by the advertising for the most part. The meaning of peacefulness is not being so caught in these things that come through as a kind of inner freedom. Real freedom isn't the freedom to choose what kind of car or beer or, or work even. Much deeper than what is real freedom? It's an inner sense of not being caught by our very own anger or fears or, or things. Not that they won't come. They come for a long, long, long time. 
but to relate to them in a way which is loving and free. I guess I'll read you another poem. I'm going to take my time tonight. I hope you don't mind. <clears throat> this is from Pablo Neruda, the Nobel Prize winner from Chile, called Keeping Quiet. He says, now we will all, now we will count to 12 and we will all keep still. For once on the face of the earth, Let's not speak in any language. Let's stop for a second and not move our arms so much. It would be an exotic moment without rush, without engines. We would all be together in a strange, sudden strangeness. Fishermen in the cold sea would not harm whales. And the man gathering salt would look at his hurt hands. Those who prepare green wars, wars with gas, with fire, victories with no survivors, would put on clean clothes and walk about with their brothers and sisters in the shade doing nothing. What I want should not be confused with total inactivity. Life is what it is about. If we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving and for once could do nothing, perhaps a huge silence might interrupt this sadness of never understanding ourselves and of threatening ourselves with death. Perhaps the earth can teach us as when everything seems dead in winter and later proves to be alive. Now I'll count up to 12 and you keep quiet and I'll go. So there's strength or concentration of mind. There's a peacefulness, a stillness not being caught by things. The last is the quality of steadfastness. This too grows in our practice. You can feel it. Steadfastness, it's like a mountaintop. Snow comes, rain comes, the clouds come, wind. The sun comes out, it's clear. More storms come. What does the mountain do? Nothing. It's just there. There's an inner capacity of, of equanimity or of balance that's one of the greatest powers that humans have. It's a, it's a power of acceptance or of love, really. Gandhi had it. You know, they sent 60,000 people to what's, what's now uh, Pakistan or what was West Pakistan uh, in the riots of the division of India. 60,000 armed troops to quell the riots. And Gandhi went by himself to the east, to Calcutta. And he said, I'm going to fast and I won't eat. I'll fast until I die, unless you stop this nonsense. And it took a while. But he was more effective as one person than these other 60,000 troops with their guns. Why? It was this power of heart, of equanimity, of love, of unshakableness that anything could arise, and it's okay. It's really wonderful. There's a story that illustrates it from the Zen tradition. The last story I'll tell, perhaps. In uh, Korea, there was a time of great turbulence and revolution, and 
rebel general and his army took over many provinces and came into one town. They were so violent, everyone fled and ran away. Even all the monks at the Zen temple, everyone but the Zen master who remained. Well, the scouts went around town, they came back and they said, well, there's this one guy in the Zen temple, everyone's gone. So the general goes over brandishing his sword. He walks in and he says, don't you know who I am? I'm the general who killed all these people, took over these provinces. I'm one who can run you through without batting an eye. And the Zen master looked back and said, and I, sir, am one who can be run through without batting an eye. And the general bowed and left. It's something that we learn, that we grow in our practice, the ability to be with anything. Because after all, what is it? Sight, sound, smell, taste, feelings, sensations, thoughts, with the up and down and light and dark of our world. And it's a kind of opening to to all the voices, uh, uh, a divine, the, the uh, Christian tradition calls it divine equilibrium. Now, one of the nice things about these factors of enlightenment is that it doesn't talk about some particular way of practice, but it talks about the heart. And any kind of path, if it's done to cultivate these qualities, leads to our freedom. The qualities of impeccability and caring for each moment with a full awareness. Then the arousing ones of energy, proper effort, of investigation and clear seeing, and of a lightness or a humor, controlled folly. And the stabilizing ones of strength of mind or concentration, tranquility, and this quality of equanimity or, or steadfastness. They all come to this. There was a party given by a Zen master when he came to this country. <clears throat> and he invited many, many other Zen masters to come. He told me it was on the West Coast and there was Suzuki Roshi and Kobenchino Sensei and Kwang Sensei and Maizumi Roshi and all these different Zen masters and Kenneth Roshi, the woman Zen master from Northern California. And he said, you should have seen it. Some of them were sitting at the table and taking their tea so delicately and mindfully. Others were leaning back in their chair and eating and joking. Some were up dancing like madmen. Who was the real Zen master? Each one of us will do this practice and will learn as we sit a strength, an ability to open to the parts of our experience, a, a greater ability to love, just because we, we, we are forced, in a way, to sit here and experience all kinds of things. And then each of us will manifest it in a different way. In a way, these retreats are a little bit like a greenhouse. You know, and there are plants in rows. You're Buddhists, little Buddha plants. And they all have different flowers. They all come in a different way. It's like a big greenhouse in here. You know? And each one, I have no idea what color or flavor, but it all comes from the same cultivation of care and tenderness and impeccability and allowing those things to grow. Mm-hmm.